It's me, isn't it, this month? Because it's even. It's me. Da, 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 no, it's me. Da. No, Taylor Swift. It's me. Is it that Taylor Swift? I don't know. Da, 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 it's me. Oh, no, it's not Taylor Swift. My daughter sings it all the time. So. Okay. Welcome to The Writer and the Critic, a monthly podcast devoted mostly to books, reviews and whatever else takes our fancy, which is probably not too much these days, to be fair. I am your host, Kirsten McDermott. What does that mean? Just wait to be introduced. It's so rude. Sorry. Sorry. With me is my co-host, Ian Mond. Maybe I spoke just for myself then. (laughs) Yeah. So you're, you're going through a particular slump and, yeah, please don't blame Push it on others, because uh, I'm not. What takes your fancy then, apart from Taylor Swift? I don't think it is Taylor Swift who sings that song. So I think <laughs> I got it wrong. I just assume everything that I hear is Taylor Swift. Uh, okay. That's that's just uh, yeah, that is yeah. an interesting assumption to make. <laughs> yeah, it is, but but I think it's accurate. Um, no, I'm, I'm in the same boat. No, that's not there true. No, 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 that's, no, 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 that's not true. No, no. So I, I have reviewed some really good books for Locust this year, I've got to say. There have been some really good debut novels, actually. One that I'm uh, just finished uh, by Jade's song called Chlorine, which I think you would like. Okay. I will put that on and the list short. of books that I it, it is short. intend to read and may never get around to. No, no, but it's short. <laughs> that is a definite plus these days. That is an absolute plus. It reminded me of actually your work. In a good way, not a bad. <laughs> okay. No, it didn't. Now, now I kind of feel like I need to read it. Um, Jason, uh, my partner, borrowed from the local library Brett Easton Ellis's new one. Shards. Yeah, and it's a it's a, it's a big mofo of a book. It's massive. So he has the actual paper copy of the book, and he brought it back from the library like this massive brick, and he looked at it and went. They only let you have it for a month and there's a waiting list. I don't know if I'm going to get to it. <laughs> and I looked at it and I looked at the blurb, which is about um, it's fictional autobiography. Well, autobiography, I don't know. Anyway, about one year when he was 17. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, how can you write that many pages about God? And, you know, I've been – I love Luna Park. I think that's probably his best novel that, that I've read. But I've been burnt by others glamorama i'm looking at you and i just went i just i just can't this one's been reviewed this one shards has actually been reviewed very well i i picked up this brick had to do some bicep curls before to warm up picked it up read the first page and like oh fuck you brett easton ellis now i have to read this book i still won't read it in a month so i will probably have to just buy it myself but uh the first couple of pages just goddamn hooked me so i think this might be one that i gel with yeah it, to it, a couple others it, reviews that i have it is on my list to read yeah i actually own it uh, it's just it is as you say very long and, I, and you've got to sort of oh my god it's out. so long got- maybe maybe <laughs> i'll read that in the two months we have off in the middle of this year from this podcast when i don't have to read podcast books instead of reading four podcast books in that two months i might get through one pretty snellis novel <laughs> So it better be good. That's fair warning, Brett Easton Ellis. It better be fucking good. It better be worth four novels. Um, yeah, well, okay. But still, you asked what takes my fancy. Like I said, I'm reading some really good uh, debuts at the moment. So yeah. Chain Gang All-Stars is another good one. There's, there's a few good books out there. Just uh, 
Just keep oh, your eye out. I'm, I'm sure there are. I'm just in a bit of a a slump, a reading slump, a writing slump, so everything is a bit blur. Are we and foreshadowing what we're about to talk about? Is yes. That- so we, we have, um, <laughs> as always, we have two books we're going to be discussing this month. The first one is The Terraformers by Annalie Newitz, which is a, I think we can say straight down the line, science fiction epic. Which I of. chose. And the second one is Sing Nightingale by Marie-Hélène Potra, who is a French-Canadian writer, and this is a weird fairy tale-ish gothic strange novel that we read, obviously, in translation, and the translation was by... Is Rhonda Mullins. Which is a really lush and delightful translation um, and must have been very difficult to do from the some of the translation notes that I read in the mm. in the book. But that is the second one. We shall begin with The Terraformers, which is, um, I read both of these digitally, but The Terraformers felt like it was a really big book. It is a big book. So yes. before I read uh, the back cover blurb, so I chose it. Um, and the reason I chose it is because I wanted to do a big summer book. Um, this is one of the big books of the year. Uh, if, if you look at all the the rankings and that it, it's one of those books that, that that people have spoken the most about, probably other than Brett Easton's book. Uh, no, I mean there are other novels that are also considered. I mean the Victor yeah. Laval book that just came out five minutes ago. Um, that's also another big book for the year. There's a couple of others, but this is one of them. And I just wanted to do on the podcast a, and I'm putting this in scare quotes, a popular book, one that a lot of people will read in the coming months uh, if they haven't read it already. Um, yeah, so I, I just thought let's do something, uh, something popular. <laughs> How <laughs> dare! From, How dare! From all the niche, <laughs> the niche shit that we read. No, 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 it's all great. We we read terrific books, um, <sighs> and, and and I think it's one of the first time, one of the rare times we've done a tour book. So it's just I just thought something a bit different for us. It I is three hundred. We've, we've done tour, but okay, oh, we've done maybe tour not. books, yes, but not not regularly. Um, so I'll, I'll read the back cover blurb. Okay. Destry is a top network analyst with the Environmental Rescue Team, an ancient organisation devoted to preventing ecosystem collapse. On the planet Saski, her mission is to terraform an Earth-like world with the help of her taciturn moose, Whistle. But then she discovers a city that isn't supposed to exist, hidden inside a massive volcano. Torn between loyalty to the ERT and the truth of the planet's history, Destry makes a decision that echoes down the generations. I would have ended it there, the blur. <laughs> That, that well, actually slightly is slightly misleading, if you had. Why? It, it goes down the generations. That's all you mm-hmm. need to know. Sure. Keep going. Well, well no, no. That, but that's my point. It keeps going. That I, I wouldn't have gone any further. I would have ended it there. <laughs> but anyway, centuries later, Destry's, Destry's protege, Misha, is building a planet-wide transit system when his worldview is turned upside down by Sulphur, a brilliant engineer from the Volcano City. Together, they uncover a dark secret about the real estate company that's buying up huge swathes of the planet, a secret that could destroy the lives of everyone who isn't Homo sapien. Working with a team of robots, naked mole rats, and a very angry cyborg cow, who is one of my favourite characters, they quietly sow seeds of subversion. But when they're threatened with violent diaspora, Misha and Salfa's very unusual child faces a stark choice, deploy a planet-altering weapon or watch their people lose everything they've built on Saski. That is, look, I'm sorry, I just don't like blurbs like this. I don't. So apologies to anyone who wrote the blurb. Apologies to Annalie Newitz if, if they wrote the blurb. Apologies. 
I just feel less is more. And, and the problem is, I understand why they've done this, because the book is split into three. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, something like a six or seven hundred, hundred year gap between each of the sections. In There'll maybe a thousand years, I think, between section two and three, but there's large gaps. So if you think you're sticking with uh, Destry for the whole novel, you're not. Uh, not. You, will t- you turn the page, <laughs> Destry's dead <laughs> and has been for centuries. Um, although I should note that this is a long-lived society, so people mm-hmm. live for 2,000 years. So it's not, it's, not, it's not assumed that Destry would be dead, but it happens to be the case. Yep. Okay? So I get that. I get that that's how the book is structured. It's got these three sections, and so there are other characters in sections two and three that uh, aren't, if you just left it to that one paragraph of a blurb, you wouldn't be referring to, but that's okay. That's fine, isn't it? I mean, maybe for people who, I mean, I, I don't read the blurb. I know we, we've said that, but I just But I'm saying that- for people who do, it it will frame their reading experience and isn't set their nice expectations. Isn't it isn't it nice to be surprised? Like, but so for I people who the do read them, they must read them because they want their reading experience to be framed in some way. And I, we don't, so we don't read them. But for people who do, if you just left the blurb at that very first part that you read, that would not be framing those love, expectations. See, I love the line, torn between loyalty, the ERT, and the truth of the planet's history. Destry makes a decision that at in italics – Echoes down the generations. I yeah. just think that beautifully encapsulates. It is. It is. the next two sections of the novel. Um, okay, look, <laughs> we could speak about this for another hour. I, well, I could. You probably don't want to, but I could. I just—it's just a don't. thing for me. Where I don't know. I get it. I, I assume yep for a certain uh, cohort of the audience. I use the word cohort a lot now. <laughs> Welcome to the public service. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's a public service word, isn't it? Cohort. So is. No one in the real world uses it, do they? Public service and academia. Oh, my God. Yeah, I say cohort so much. Um, yeah, for a certain section of the population, I suppose that works. Okay, it's just my gripe. But that's, yep. <laughs> anyway, so that is a summary of the book, <laughs> which, which, as we said, it was, and, you know, uh, having not known anything about the book and, and not had a, a physical copy to even look at the blurb had I been tempted. It was a surprise to me when I finished the first it was, section. It was to me. And then you start the next one and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but but good. But good. Yeah, Not bad. Yeah. I, I didn't well, go, it oh just my takes God, you a little what? bit to, I guess, to, to reorient yeah. and, and to, to mourn whistle. But but that's precisely what science fiction, <laughs> yeah, and mourn whistle and, and Destry. Uh, Whistle's a great character as well. Whistle's. Okay. Whistle's yeah, okay. the character in the book for me. Whistle and True. maybe that, Moose, the cat at the end. Yeah. The, uh, Whistle's the one I was mourning over mm. when I turned the page. Yeah, the same. But that, but that's what this science fiction should be doing, disorientating you to a degree, especially if science fiction set 50,000 years in the future. We should yeah. say that this is set in the year 57,000. So, um, yeah, so that's not a bad thing. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I was I wasn't saying that you were saying. I just wanted to reinforce, you know, emphasize that point that that in turning that page and going, wait, what happened to Destry? Where's Whistle? What they're dead? No, yep. is that? But still, it's good. Yeah, but also it wasn't like they're they're dead because you know um, you know some horrible thing occurred off page. They just you know several hundred years have passed. They have gone with them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it is these three. Um, I guess 
narratives that occur in this in this world over a few centuries. Oh, more um, than that. So it's, it's like nearly 2,000 years, I think. Well, that's a few centuries. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I would have said a couple of millennia, but, yeah, all right. I mean, sure. You do um, you, Kirsten. You do you. But also, like, well, the interesting thing is, though, because, as you said, this is a a world in which, you know, many, many, many um, characters are very, very long-lived. I mean, especially the, like, the one particular, thro- you know, through character, um, very long-lived, clearly. So it doesn't doesn't actually feel like millennia have passed. It, it really doesn't because the generation, the generations that inhabit this world are, are, are not of the same length as what we think of when we think generations. Like if we thought, you know, a few hundred or a couple thousand years, we'd be thinking, you know, massive changes. Everyone is dead. Everyone who knew anyone or could possibly have known anyone or even the history of anyone is dead. You know, it's, it's not, the same so it, it it doesn't quite it doesn't feel to a reader in the 21st century that this is a couple millennia have passed between the beginning and the ending of the novel and that's I think simply an effect of um yeah the, the longevity factor that goes into it and I guess knew it's needed that amount of time for the the literal world building the the terraforming that happens that, that there was a lot of ge- like geological time even though um you know this is obviously artificial um we're artificially uh, driven um by uh, by humans instead of by by nature it is still you know using natural processes which take a lot of time so you couldn't just set this in you know 100 years and have it work but because of the the way the world is set up, it, it definitely didn't feel like a couple of millennia. So it, it, it has an interesting view, and I don't know if it's deliberate or not, around the notion of history. So right now, um, so the history that we experience mm. is very quick. Things happen very quickly, historically speaking. And if you look at the, the same sort of time period of the novel versus if you compare it to our time period, if you go back... 1500 years there's a shit done that's changed mm. and i think there's an argument in the novel i don't think it's said but i think it's implied that once you hit a certain level of technology history slows down especially if you're long lived so the reason why history is so quick for us is because we only have a limited lifespan of 80 years whatever and mm. of course going further back it's even less but once you can decant yourself into multiple bodies if you've got the money to do that which is plot point of the novel, mm-hmm. uh, then it's the same uh, entity, sentience, existing over a longer period of time. So the same views and well, and you have a sort of element of um, status, uh, stasis, sorry, not yeah. status, stasis, well, historically both. speaking. Yeah, yeah, that both. Yes, true. And, and so, and, 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 I, and I, if that was deliberate or not, I wasn't sure, but that's what came through to me that, yes, thousands, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by, but it's a lot of these are the same sentience that you've seen before and therefore same viewpoint, especially ones running the world, running yeah. this planet, running or, the league. Or just uh, like a, a generation or something below. Yes, correct. Like I said, it, it feels like the the time was done in order to uh, enable the, the terraforming aspect and, and the literal world-building aspect of the novel. But the way the society kind of functions and characters interact and relationships form and, and dissolve is not reflective of what how we would think of 
as centuries and millennia. It's I mean, it says something that's that Scrub Jay, who is the rather wonderful sentient train, hmm. <laughs> which is one of the great ideas in the book. I just love the trains. The trains yeah. are the best. Mostly because my job revolves around them. So, transport, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really got – I actually got off a lot on the whole train bit. It, it just just was terrific. But Scrub Jay's grandmother, again, scare quotes, mm. is uh, Destry. So, yeah. Uh, Essentially, dest- yeah. And that's 1,500 years prior. So that's – yeah. This, so, th- so that's why it feels like um, geologically a lot of time has moved on. Uh, but society-wise, it's, it's if a, Destry it's, if yeah. Destry was decanted from page one to the final page of the well before the stuff that the, the climactic stuff that happens towards the end of the novel, but just before that had been decanted and plonked down there, yep. uh, Destry wouldn't know the difference. Would say, "Oh, okay." No, well, Destry well, would recognize. There's, there's more she would recognize the world. She would recognize yeah. how people interact. She would recognize. She might go, "Oh, there's worms now," um, but you know. She, yeah, it would be a very it would be a very recognisable world. You know what it's, unlike, you know what it felt like. You know what it felt like. You know when you go on leave for a few weeks, and you come back, and things have slightly changed. Slightly changed. Like, way. oh, okay, I've got to catch up on this, this, and so so and so's left now, and there's this new person. But okay, yeah. but but essentially, it's the same job. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you know, if we had, <laughs> if we paused ourselves and then decanted, even even 20, 30 years later, we'd be like, what the fuck is this world now? I have to learn all this new shit. What? How? <laughs> like it, it, would, it would be an incredible temporal and cultural shock, whereas, yes, in, in this world, th- hundreds, couple thousand years have passed and you go, okay, cool. Where do I live now? <laughs> so, so I think that's really interesting and I think it's a really prov- – well, not provocative, but just a really interesting part of the novel. I have a problem though. I think it's just a I think it's just a byproduct of the world building. And I think that was one of the issues. It really I don't I don't feel that um this is how deliberate? time would, would work. Because yeah, well, apart from anything else, not not everyone is long lived. And I, I just don't feel that this is this is how the experience of that amount of time would, would actually work. And I don't think the world would not develop for, for that amount of time. Well, th- this is my fundamental problem with, with the novel. Mm. So, so to be clear, I I found it quite entertaining to read. I actually enjoyed, I, I don't know about you, but I actually enjoy the reading experience. Um, there's some really interesting characters. There's some great uh, interactions between the characters, certainly in terms of relationships. Loved all that. And I love the train, Scrub J, and the trains as a society. But <laughs> I have a problem with the fact that it's very milk toast in in its views, because this is set fifty thousand years from now, but essentially all the same problems that we exist that exist in twenty twenty three exist in this world. They've been slightly altered, yeah. but they are essentially the same. Capitalism is still a thing. It yeah. horrifies me. You know, we keep saying, or others call it late stage capitalism, which is explicit about this idea that capitalism is on, on the verge of eating itself, you know, in, mm. in 2023. The idea that 55,000 years later, late-stage capitalism would still be around, I don't know, it terrifies, depresses it's, me, it's, and it just doesn't feel real. It, it is depressing. And, no, it, it doesn't. And that's what I mean. It, it's sort of like the novel is, as as we've said before and as other people have said, science fiction is always talking about now. 
it's always talking about now. I, I believe we do have a fundamental incapacity to think and imagine too far away from us. We, we just can't. This is, this is absolutely not, if we all get there, what the year 59,000 is going to look like. Absolutely not, in no way. Um, just in the way that, that movies and books, you know, science fiction movies and books that were made, you know, 20, 30 years ago really don't reflect the world we have now. You know, even though at the time people are going, oh, my God, this really could be the world in, in 50 years, in 30 years or whatever, and it, it's not. Um, we, we do have a fundamental, I think, incapacity to imagine so something which is extreme, like at the extreme ends of time and separation from where we are now. Um, we can we can go forward in a few steps and we can build on things and we can extrapolate. Um, and that's not a problem. But as I'm saying, what it just means that the science fiction we write, even, you know, science fiction set far, far in the future and, and you know, doing this kind of world building and this imaginative extrapolation into what the world may look like a century, two centuries, 2000 millennia, um, is still talking about now. Right, what what we might like the future to be, what our problems might be, what might have been overcome, what what might be more entangled. So, yes, I'm with you. I I didn't, I don't buy that. This is this is how things could possibly. I'd be open to accepting it if if post the Anthropocene civilization had gone back to barbarism. And then yeah, but that's not apparently what happened. happened. So, so what what we should point out is it's not a reset. No, the way we, this is not a reset novel. The way we survived is um, we, we reached a certain level of technology where we could actually uplift animals, and this is one of the key elements mm. of, the, of the novel, uh, uh, animals and non-human uh, uh, creatures, uh, and together democratically, and it's actually a really lovely idea, democratically, and it's, it's called The Great Bargain, work together with those uh, creatures to both save the planet and then and then set up uh, templates for future terraforming of other worlds. Um, and then an organisation is established, which is mentioned in the um, blurb, the, uh, what is it, the Environmental R- Rescue Team. So, so, but this idea of the great bargain, this idea of a bargain between humans mm. and non-human life um, is, is this wonderful notion. We could quibble on the idea of does non-human life need to reach our level of sentience for us, to, I don't know you, you, whether that's that's human centric. Well, I suppose the book does play on that because th- that is one of the key themes that we do become human centric. Yeah, it was it was one of the. I mean, I'll just say I I didn't actually have a tremendously enjoyable experience reading this book. There are a lot of really interesting ideas. There were some some characters who were very engaging and and some character work that was really really interesting. But I found the book to be overly expositional which maybe it had to be with the amount of ideas that were being pushed in there but it was extremely expositional writing the the narrator is a weird mix of omniscient and almost direct third person but because it's it felt more omniscient because you get such explicit descriptions of why a character has said something or why they're thinking something or why they're feeling something and I found that really really annoying that's a personal thing but I, I just really hate when we you know a character will say something and it, it, it is obvious you know why, why they're saying something and you don't have to say they said it angrily or you know Destry was thinking about this other thing and that's why she's ignored this character I mean 
I found the exposition very annoying and not just the exposition in describing how the world works because in, in a book like this that you need more of that than otherwise. Um, and, you know, she didn't, uh, like Destry wasn't um, doing a lot of as-you-know-bobs with other characters, right? So the narrator, the omniscient narrator is telling you a lot of that stuff. But it wasn't just the world-building exposition. It was the exposition of, of, of characters and w- why they were thinking, doing, feeling things. And that grated on me quite a bit. Um, I, I, I did not feel trusted as a reader to understand the book, um, which I find always very, very annoying. And you're talking about, just to be clear, you're talking about things like where characters are constantly frowning or looking, or someone notices another character is looking disturbed. Yeah. So, so we're being told that yes, there's something. We're, be, we're being exactly. We're being, you know, the, so it's the a little inner... things. It's not. It's not the actual exposition of now. I'm going to explain to you that this planet doesn't have tectonics, which which yeah. is a, which, which, is which actually... you have to right because you yeah. have to get that across to the reader. And as I said, um, you know, like the author knew it wasn't doing a lot of as you know, Bob, through her characters. So you didn't have Destry there ex- explaining like, as you know, blah, 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 which we all hate as science fiction readers. Um, so it wasn't that type of really clunky world building exposition. So you, and, and you have to, you have to have these conversations about the, the world um, and you either have characters talking about it or showing you things or you have narrators doing it and in this case it was mostly the narrator and that I didn't mind so much but it was that level of exposition continued into everything which also I, the book didn't need to be this long if <laughs> there was less exposition about why characters were thinking doing feeling in certain ways you know, it, it could have been reduced a little bit in length simply on that, I reckon, by about 10% at least. So I found that quite annoying that the text itself I really didn't engage with that much and mostly I think on that level. But the the other problem that kept going through this book that I really, really pushed back against is this humanification of all sentient life forms. I don't buy that if mole rats, you know, get augmented or however it works with with a level of sentience that approaches human levels of sentience, they would think, feel, act in a way that is human. And and that's ultimately what most of the, even the train, like, you know, it's very... Human centric, I think, is a really good word for it because it it brings it it makes the case that um, human sentience is sentience, and you know if you ele- elevate in any other creature to that level of human sentience, they will just be but, human. But because an uplift is a common trope in science fiction. I know. So David Brin's uplift series, which this reminded me of a lot, um, because that's also set far in the future and it has sentient dolphins and all that sort of stuff, um, is is very much about that. And, and mm. yes, it's this, it is this idea that is human-centric that, that uh, well, actually, it goes, in fact, with, with David Brin, it goes beyond that because it actually there are other alien species, which this book doesn't have, that are uplifting us to them. So it's right. not we are uplifting the animals to us, it's we're yep. being uplifted to the level of these alien species who feel we are not to their level and therefore can't communicate to us. And so... The idea here is that the only way to to um, save the Earth was to bring these animals to our level, whatever that means, so that we could communicate. 
and therefore be democratic in how we treat the earth and then every other planet. So I think you, the sensibility is is good, but I, but I agree with you that that, mm. it, that it assumes again that it's us who can stay the same. Sa- Homo sapiens can stay the same, and everyone has to come to our level so yeah. we can communicate. We're not the reverse. We don't go down to whatever their level, but, it, but it's more non- non-human levels are whatever that means. I think it's it's like I don't think I'm explaining it well. It's no, I it's think you more are more than that. It's, I, I, it's not I'm, just that we want okay. to bring other organisms, or, or we, that we even should, up to a, hu- a human level of sentience. It's just that when they get there. Why on earth would we expect them to be human in terms of the way they, you know, feel emotions, interact with each other, yeah, want to yeah, live no, in the understand. world, interact with other creatures? Why? Why would they code human in that? It's it's not like I, it's really disappointing to me. I There's a lack a really of alienness, isn't there? There's a lack of non-human. There's alienness. a lack of non-human yeah. anything here. Yeah. You know, there's obviously, okay, so whistle is a, a moose, like Canadian moose, 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 right? The antlers, yeah. everything. And, you know, there we have other characters who are cats and they could mole rats, as you say, um, uh, cyborgs and robots, um, so non-organic um, sentient beings. And obviously their physicality does affect the way they, they physically move in the world. But that's the end of how their physicality affects their interaction with the world. Right, yeah, and it's not that, yeah. Like, I mean, I you know, I have two cats, and I love my cats, and we interact and we communicate as best we can. But they're fucking cats, <laughs> you know. They have their own cat ways of doing stuff, and if they suddenly were able to communicate with me, and we could communicate on a level where we very clearly and explicitly understood each other in the same way that I can understand someone who's speaking English. They would not just be a little furry human. They they would be something else. It's like that Rick and Morty episode in season five where where the, <laughs> yeah, the turkeys are turned into human. It's a Thanksgiving <laughs> oh, and they try and take over the earth. But it's made clear that these are turkeys that can now speak, but they're exactly. still turkeys. Exactly. They're not humans. They're turkeys. Exactly, and and that you know, and I think it would be so be, like, so be more like Rick and Morty. Be more like Rick and Morty. Well, I have not seen Rick and Morty. No, 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 no I'm kidding. But I'm potentially, kidding. yes, and that that that's it. It is like there are there are organisms that are not human, and you know, a level of you know in, intelligence, however we want to frame that, is not going to mean that automatically. Oh well, you'll be like humans then. It's like why would would they be? They would still be what they are. So, so what did you think of the depiction of Moose then? Because Moose is a cat. I mean, w- was Moose a cat? Like, sure, he so, was a furry so, four-legged quadruped with a tail and he, he licked his ass sometimes, but and, and was but he also a cat? stretched when the sun, like, like Scrub yeah. Jay would go near the sun and Moose yeah. would stretch. But beyond I mean, that, he would stretch in the sun. But that's what I mean. He Like, Moose wasn't – I, I just felt – Instead of, I get what the book was doing. I get the book was making the case for other organisms to be as valuable. And and there's the 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 tragic thread that runs through it is that not all organisms are as valuable, and there are classes of people. Well, we should talk about that. This book also deals with endangered and chattel slavery. I mean, it, there's yeah, exactly. Slavery there are and classes chattel, and just, of 
yeah. of people that that are not considered, you know, because there is an intelligence assessment scale, right? And Correct. if you don't, it, it's horrific. And and we have done we have done this to other human beings, and we can we do it now to to other non human yeah. beings as well. Um, that we we do class this idea of intelligence as being the the be all and end all of whether a person, no matter what body that person inhabits, is valid and worthwhile and independent and gets to have rights and and you know, um, and so that's a that is a, a theme running through the book, and and it's not just that. Um, and what is revealed fairly early on, it's revealed in the destry moose uh, destry whistle section, um, is it's not just that. Oh, you're you're not as intelligent as other creatures, therefore you inhabit this level where you are essentially, you know, chattel slavery or an indentured servant or or you know, a mount, you know. Um, that that other more intelligent people can ride. We have actually artificially hampered your. You are that intelligent. We have just put some kind of cognitive control collar on you so that you can't express yourself to show that you're as intelligent as everybody else. Which is in itself incredibly horrific. But it again goes back to the idea that we regard this this concept of in intelligence and expressive intelligence and communicative intelligence as being the be-all and end-all of what makes a creature valuable and what gives them the right to live and have their life the way they want it, which I think is is ingrained in this book and it is deeply troubling. Yeah, but, in, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I just... Because it's one of the utopic aspects of the book. Hey, we'll, we'll uplift everyone. We'll bring all the other creatures into the yeah. bargain, even even creatures that aren't organic that we we literally create out of metal and nuts and bolts and whatever. We bring them all in and and, and it's, it's great because everyone is intelligent now and everyone can understand each other. So and think, that's not what we should be about. So I think the division is in the ideology. So mm. humanity is still wedded to the old ways of capitalism. We see it. Uh, uh, and then, and then uh, racism. We see it, and, yeah. and not so much gender, but but certainly slavery is is a tool that's used by sapiens in this book. Um, it's the it's the non human uh, life forms that uh, who aren't who weren't wedded with this to begin with, who mm. break free of that. And I think that's where the division is in terms mm. of them not being like us, being different and and seeing a different world, which is why. Uh, the, that hidden um, community on the, the spider community, which Destry stumbles across uh, in the first part of the novel, is so different to uh, the Vedance company community that she lives in yeah. because it's one that's disconnected from those ideological views. But that's where the difference is. It's on ideology. It's not on characteristics. Again, if you didn't know that Moose was a cat, you would think Moose was not a cat. Where's Moose? is just a human. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you didn't know Scrub, Scrub Jay was a train, I mean, he's, uh, would you know that Scrub Jay, well, I suppose it's carrying passengers. I mean, but carrying passengers. But, 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 <laughs> but Scrub Jay, importantly, a spends a good chunk of the novel in a remote. Yeah, this, this exactly. is where they can decant their consciousnesses in another part. Part of their consciousness. Yeah, part of their consciousness. Yeah, great. Yeah. And... And again, and in fact, that whole part of the conscience thing, you start to think of Scrub Jay as: is it just AI? Is it just a higher mm. form of AI? Is it is it a you know what I'm saying? It's is it yeah. is it train qua train, or is it just artificial intelligence in a train body that can then decant itself wherever it wants to, wants to go? So it's not yeah. really a train. 
And it, and let's it get, does, this, it does go back point. to the mind-body problem, point. right? It yeah, goes back correct. to the mind-body problem and the oh, idea that, that, that somehow we, we are this, this thing inside a body that is not affected by the body. And if you take this, this thing, this, you know, this consciousness, this soul, whatever you want to call it, out of our meat bodies and put it somewhere else, it will be identical to what it was in the meat body, which is fundamentally untrue, fundamentally untrue. And dangerously untrue absolutely dangerously untrue um and it, it is it is something that we we can see you know in conversations today in in the spaces of mental health and disability where the idea is that somehow you are you despite your body you are you despite the limitations of your body despite the um the health issues your body may have you are just you and you are not you are your body and you are interlinked with your body and if you are not in your body or if your body changes or the hormones or the chemicals in your body change you become a different person and that's not a bad thing it's just we are interlinked because I hate using these words like uplifted, elevated, because it's it's not. It's fundamentally changed. You don't have a sentient mole rat. You have a being in a mole rat body because that's not what a naked mole rat would be like. They would have their own naked mole ratness, which is not coming through. In this, I think we see that a bit more with the worms. Well, we don't get a lot of interaction with that, the worms. That's true. But what, the very little we see, they're probably mm. the most still like their true selves yeah. selves but yeah possibly um and i guess this is one of as as you've alluded to before this is one of the depressing the fundamentally depressing things that i think we've both found about this book the idea that you could have this world which is so far um in the future and and location wise this is these are other worlds this is a there is a universe here of yeah. terraformed worlds that are connected and yet it is so depressingly the same. Yeah, I mean, because even the politics, <laughs> and I, I, yeah. actually I know we've spent a lot of time talking about the book, but mm. it, it does provoke these discussions, even yeah. if they're negative to a degree. But even the politics is very much 21st century. Earth. Yeah. The League is basically the UN, the gov- different governing bodies. It is, it, and, and I know familiarity is important to sell a book. I get that. But yeah. it lacks a certain radicalism that I want to see more. And, yeah, and again, that's I know a really John, good Jonathan, word for it. Yes, absolutely. That that is yeah. it. I if I'm looking at a world that is I know Jonathan Stray Strain is saying to me right now, you don't review the book that wasn't written, you know, don't that you would have rather But we're been not. Written. This is a book set in terraformed worlds in a terraformed universe fifty seven thousand years in the future. That is the book that was written. And I'm saying that's depressing and I don't buy it. Yeah, it, I, I am reviewing the book that was written. <laughs> it, I would have assumed it'd be a more radical state of affairs yeah. than what we get. What yeah. we get is essentially twenty first century Earth with a few added uh, with a few technology. Well, okay, some major technology. A, a lot of yeah, okay, okay, yeah. massive technological yeah. change. But 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 that's the funny thing as well. Technological change often changes us. Yeah? Yes, it yes, doesn't it does. seem to have done that here. Not psychologically, no, no. It's a, you know what I'm going to say it. It's a psychologically naive novel. That's what it is. It is because these people, and by people, in the context of this book, I am referring to all of the sentient creatures and beings, whether they are organic or non-organic or, or a mix of both. Um, the people in this book are like 21st century humans. You could you could you know a book if if you if you had look at a society 2,000 years in the past. Those people would be more different from us 
than the people in the terraformers. And, and again, I get the idea that, that that there's a sedimentary quality that once you hit a certain point of technology, time essentially is meaningless because, which is depressing as well, that we hit a point of stasis mm. because that's what this book is essentially arguing that yeah. we hit a point, that's it, <laughs> we stay the same unless we have and, revol- and revolutions. Is, I mean, there is there is a, I mean, it's not equal as you say, like not every the people we have met, most of them have have this, but it's not equal. Uh, and there are lots of strata of society where there are beings who are absolutely not not equal, um, and and don't get the longevity and don't get the liberty, yeah, or, or the recognition that um, the the main characters we're walking around with have. But it is it really is a yeah I don't know I think de- <laughs> depressing is kind of the the theme for me of this book because it's like but. You know, why Why haven't, why hasn't, it's not that why haven't things changed because I get that and if that's the thesis of the book that things just won't change, they just won't change because humans are humans and if you get to sentience you, you're human anyway and nothing will change and this is just what the world is, which is depressing and if that's the thesis of the book, okay. I don't think that is the thesis of the book because if that was well, the thesis of the book. that's what comes out of the, it. The, 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 well, yes, agree, <laughs> but if that was the thesis of the actual deliberate thesis yeah. of the book, then the last 100 pages wouldn't be, wouldn't, would, would be, not there. I mean, the whole point of the last hundred pages is that things are going to change to some degree. Which, which feels, in, in the context of having just read this book and, and what is talking, what it is talking about in, in history and you know the natural evolution and the terraformed evolution of of worlds and creatures and beings and so on, it feels really hollow because it's like what it hasn't changed for fifty nine thousand years. Why? Yeah. Why should we? Accept what, what, this what, now? what are you yeah. giving us where we go? Oh, now. It will change. Yeah, and it's interesting. And I, I, this is my it final. It just feels point, like, because, oh, humans are ridiculously optimistic, and that won't change either. But we. It, well, yeah. it's interesting that there isn't a fourth section to show the change. Yeah, maybe that couldn't be imagined. That's I think it's a fundamental a failure of imagination with this book to 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 be that ambitious to set it so far in the future with such extreme developments in technology from from what where we are now. And to not imagine something radically different to what we have, because we don't necessarily have to imagine how to get there. Sometimes it's enough to imagine what could be different, and then that opens the door to start thinking yeah, about exactly. how we get there. And this book doesn't. As I said, it's depressing. <laughs> it's just, well, that's uh, for me. It was very depressing. That's a depressing I really, note. Taylor. There's things I did like about it, like wh- what I really did like. I liked some of the. Um, really positive and emotionally rich depictions of of character relationships non so non human in terms of sexuality we haven't really spoken sexu- about including that. sexuality yeah. I, re- I really loved some of the um i guess close in depictions of the world and the terraforming and and stretching that out on a on a a compressed subjective time, but obviously yeah. a lengthy geological time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I liked a lot of the, I guess, big picture philosophy around ecosystems and what works in that. Depressing that the powers that be haven't recognised it in 55,000 years, which is another, I guess, little thing. Like, how, how did we get there if we haven't actually recognised this and didn't destroy the world? Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. if we don't, don't recognise this shit now, and I mean like, now in 2023, not in 2050 or 2100, if we don't recognise it now, we are never getting off this planet ever. It's an impossibility. So I think that's where the, the book says there are waves, as in it was recognised, it was fixed. For a long time, that's how things were, but then capitalism mm. 
did its thing, which it always does. Yeah. Which is that it tried to commodify that recognition. So and to make money out of it. So that's yeah. and that's that's the bit that I found fundamentally depressing. But I, th- the book is full of great ideas. It's yeah. ju- it just doesn't come together for either of us as yeah. a. I mean, you you must find it fundamentally depressing that in the year fifty nine thousand, we are still debating the necessity of public transport. I know. <laughs> You must to say that go, section, what is the point of my job? Correct, correct. <laughs> to say that part of the novel uh, resonated with me is, uh, but in a bad way, is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, those arguments, I mean, oh, my God, it was, gave me flashbacks, but um, <laughs> not good ones. But, but, yeah, I mean, seriously, that that's if that's, yeah, what is the point of us doing anything? We might as well stop if that's the way it's going to end up. Exactly. We can't years. even sort out the fucking trains. No, we can't sort out the trains. <laughs> Anyway, let's How are we move getting on. off the planet? Please, because I'll get I'll, so, so I don't deal with passenger, I deal with freight trains, but that's still the point. But, but that is the, the point, though. Right. We, we haven't figured it out. Uh, uh, but I have to say, we, we, whether we feel that book was a failure or not, it provokes discussion, and that is a, mm. that is something. This is not a book where we just went, oh, whatever. There, no. there, it, it, is, it provokes discussion, and that's important. It, it does. Literature. Like, and does, sometimes even books that make that. you angry and depressed make you think about why you're angry and depressed. <laughs> Which I think, Absolutely. for me, the Terraformers w- w- was definitely doing that. Okay, so next book. Yeah, so we're now moving on to Sing Nightingale, which I thought would be Kirsten Catnip, especially when you read the top line of the blurb, which is Peter Greenaway meets Angela Carter, a gothic tale of secrets and revenge. And I'm sorry that I'm stereotyping you, Kirsten. Which I would I'm not sorry. disagree with. <laughs> I, would not, I would not disagree with that first line in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to continue and read the rest of the blurb before okay. we get going. Beneath the bright sky of Noirax lies a long tradition of secrets. Generations of men on the Malmaison estate have fathered countless children, both legitimate and not. The women all meet tragic ends or live in the shadows of the estate, and the illegitimate offspring are cared for by nursemaids or sent off to orphanages. Right now the estate is quiet, but the son is returning home and the father, worried that the land has been less generous with its sumptuous offerings, decides to bring in a whisperer to make the plants and animals grow. But this whisperer awakens the past. The generations of silenced women will begin to make their voices heard and the violence lurking under the lush perfumes of the forest will make itself known. The hunters will be hunted and the wolves will howl an announcement of a new reign. So that's the first time I've read that just now, and that is a terrible blurb. It it gives way too much away. Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. That's like you don't find out half that stuff till deep in the novel. This is a short book too. This it is, is not a short a long book. book. Wow. Yeah. So, so you know, so I've reviewed this for Logos. Mm-hmm. You you've independently chosen this book. Yes, and I have not read actually- your review. Well, no, because my review comes out today. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> in the in the uh, in the magazine, and so um, the I, I didn't give away all that. I mean, I, I, I this is the hardest part of actually writing a review is is the price. I mean, you could have. It's on the blurb. <laughs> There's no secrets there. <laughs> Well, the, the the thing I say is that uh, the, the main things I point out is that the father. The donkey father, as he's affectionately known as, mm-hmm. um, because he, the farm he, at the moment 
raises donkeys. So, 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 so the thing about about this this it, it's it's uh, Malmaison is the estate. It's gone through multiple generations, and the previous fathers, men who ran it, uh, were all more powerful or more more prestigious than this particular mm. version. So there was the era of the horn, era of the wing, era of the hoof, and now we've got era of the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> and the donkey father, which is the the latest iteration uh, of the of the men that run this uh, estate, he's actually no longer interested in the estate because, in great Gothic fashion, it's crumbling away, and he's now focusing on becoming the mayor of the nearby village, of which we can't pronounce, but we think is Noirux or yes. something in that. No something there, something like that, something like that. So, that, so I say that's what I say that he's focused there, and as a result, he's uh, he's looking around for some helpers, and he brings on this young lady, Eleanor, uh, to help, and he's like, and his son, who's left his wife uh, for reasons I do explain, because uh, as I say, uh, Genty well, left his wife probably Ar- being kicked out of his marriage. Well, well, I say Genty left his wife after his mother-in-law walked on him dressed in the scullery maid's clothes. So, uh, yep, and the book does follow that thread through, yep. what that means for Gianti. Uh, so he comes back as well. And the father is thinking, well, I can become mayor. Those two can get together, make wonderful babies. Gianti can become the new Continue mayor, the, the Continue line. on the generation. And I don't have to worry about this joint. Yes. But the Harridan, the Har- that's what she's called, the she's Harridan. A wonderful character. Terrific character. And this is the bit where I end the praise, the praise see. It says, it, it foresees the coming of Eleanor as being a terrible bringing terrible uh, things with it uh, and, that, and, and that evil will descend on the young one, meaning Genty, and nothing can protect him from it. And that's where I end. That doesn't give away my my brilliant pricey, my beautifully <laughs> hard, and I do, I spend too long on them, only gives away probably the first quarter of the book. Yeah, and, and when you're writing a lengthy review, you are obviously going to be giving things away. Um, and, and people who choose to read reviews before they read the book, that's, yeah, that's what they accept. That's the exchange. But, yeah, no, to have that on the blurb, it's like there's so much in that blurb there. I mean, not it's not heavy on detail, but, yeah, because the whole, the whole setup of the book, I don't know if you had the same experience as me, but for the whole setup, it really was setting up Eleanor to be the bringer of ruin. And even though you didn't like the, the father, and in the beginning, I, I didn't much care for Jonti either until his story came out. Um, her, her story came out, I guess we should say. Yeah, no, no, that's the whole point. It leaves you the, the first quarter of the novel puts you in that position. Who's 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 the sympathetic character, so to speak? Who's who should I be supporting? You don't know. This makes it damn clear where it, everyone it does. sits. And I, you know, for the first third of the book, maybe I was like because of the way she'd been framed and and brought into the narrative and it's we should say it's a very it is a explicitly narrated story down down to the the elements where the narrator is telling you they're telling you a story and talking about postmodern. i I called it postmodern gothic in my review because that's what it is there's definitely postmodern elements in there a lot of postmodern elements in there but yeah so so this is a very much a narrated story very framed and, and but there is uh, because there is because that is done so deliberately, it works. Like this is it, as with with the way um, tradition, you know, traditional in scare quotes fairy tales are narrated. There, this is is narrated in a a similar fashion, and you accept it because that is the voice of the book. This is how the book is speaking to you, and it's a beautiful voice. It's it's really consistent and lovely. 
and manages to to pull off this trick of where even though it is an omniscient narrator and it is by necessity hiding some things from you, you don't feel cheated at any point when when no. things are revealed. But when like in the first third of it, it really was I, I really didn't like Eleanor and, and and more than not liking Eleanor, I didn't like how Eleanor was being presented as this manipulative sort of seductress type character. And I thought, oh, this feels so Oh, it's so cliched, and so you know, you you bring in this this powerful woman, and of course she has to be. But the the beauty of this book is that it that is how she is framed by the the patriarchal structures of of the book. Correct. And it was, and of course you don't like the donkey father either, and and it's just like I just I I don't know if I want to read a book about people I don't like. <laughs> I've read enough of them, but it is a short book, and and it it does pick up the rhythms and and it's interesting interesting things happen from from the first pages so it it drags you along and then by the time you're sort of enmeshed in the the horrors of Malmaison and what's happened there and what's happened to the women who are collectively known i guess as the desiderata the you know the um the, the women the fathers have desired and then cast away you you're you're in the story and then I felt really bad about not liking Eleanor because it's like, oh no, I bought into it. <laughs> I bought into that horrible patriarchal mindset of. And, of- and, and that's where the novel is really clever and how subversive mm. it is by setting you in one direction and pushing you in it. Really, and then you realize that no, it's actually going in this way. Yeah. And, and because then she, because she, she is the agent of change. That's what she is. Yes. Uh, but, and, but and the said, agent of ruin. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, to something that needs to be ruined. Yeah, yeah. And, and she reminded me of, um, you know, Asher Todd from Path of Thorns, so Angela Slatter's novel. She reminded me of Noemi Taboda from Mexican Gothic, and I do mention both those books in my review, because the, both of those characters are agents of change and ruin. They, mm. they bring ruin, but in a way that needs to be brought. This is this is a, yeah. a, a, this is a, uh, a rotted, corrupt, whatever pustule on the body of uh, of fairy tales that must be burst and it is by but but i get your point that that initially she's presented as someone who's just going to use her sexuality as a means of making mm. that happen but that, and, but that and, and for her own for her own ends i guess yeah. and that is the difference because at the beginning you think oh this is someone coming you know she's got her own agenda and, and which she, she doesn't actually she doesn't really understand her own agenda until it's unfolds for her. No, she, she knows, and this is a spoiler, because, and again, <laughs> this happens late in the book. She she knows she comes from this place. Yes. She doesn't know exactly how or why, but she knows yes. she comes from this place. Yeah, oh, yeah, she, she has a reason for reaching out and for yeah. being here, but she doesn't have, I don't think she has that exact agenda that she has at the end, at the start. No. As no. she discovers things, then she realises what she needs to do. But it made me really sit back and think about, my own biases like as a reader um, because you have what you have you have this setup of this 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 world and yes it is decaying it is falling into ruin but it, it is the status quo and then you have a character who's being brought in that is a threat to the status quo and as a reader even though you don't like the father and I I didn't like Junti at first and I didn't like this but you you still as a reader you are aligned with the status quo yeah, you know, and I'm and I'm sitting there going, I that's right. I didn't like 
the father. I didn't like the estate and the heritage. Why would I be worried that there was a character coming into threat? Why would I not be going, oh, good, here comes a character to tear it down? But that's not the way the narrative has set it up and therefore it positions you as a reader in a in a different way and it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Because because well because the is saying the Herodin's saying that uh, you know just the, the evil will descend on the young yeah. one. It, it proves to be completely untrue. Yeah. The evil was already there. It never descended. It was already there. And that's what the book unravels uh through that. And the Herodin herself goes through a revelatory process in the last third of the novel. So Yeah. Yeah. Because the yeah, Herodin so was aligned in the beginning with Malmaison. Cr- and, yeah, and, and our expectation fathers. is that we expect that the Herodin's some sort of prophetic being who does see what will occur. But no, she's wrong too. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you it's, were, it's, Kirsten. The setup is just beautifully done. And um I didn't engage with this novel as much as I would have hoped. And I'm not quite Can I can I pro- sure can I propose why? Sure. So you said it before, but the, the scaffolding of this novel is for all is there for all to see. So well, the artifice, yes. you said it's a narrated novel, but it's mm. not just a narrated novel. Uh, it's a very uh, – the, the artifice of the novel is she's pushed it there. You, I'll, I'll quote bits because I think it's important to say that um, the, the very opening page, a couple of pages, uh, describes – Oh, like the little um, preface. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it comprises the, the village – uh, to a theatre where it says a cardboard sets a stage in which to deliver lines of puppets awaiting a hand to bring them to life. A- and that that idea of, of that every character here is essentially uh, a, a th- part of a theatre or, or artificial is 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 there throughout the whole book. That's not just a nice no, it rec- bit of imagery. No, it recurs a lot. Yeah, it does it recurs a lot. A lot. When, um, when, when the father, when the donkey father um, leaves – um, the Malmazon to go to the, to the village, it actually says that the estate folds down like a cardboard set that has been dismantled. So it's got all this sort of imagery of um, artifice, of scaffolding. But the point I was going to make is this is a juggling game and there's only so much of that I think readers, and this was my problem with the book, you can take where, well, is this, how much am I meant to invest in this world <laughs> is really yeah. the question I'm well, asking well, that, that, That's true. And there, there's telling a story and then there's, Doing what Sing Nightingale does, which is, which is yes, that very postmodern thing of I am telling you a story and here is how it works. And uh, as I said, the voice of the novel works beautifully. It's a very consistent voice. It is very lush, but to some extent, and possibly, literally coming off the back of the trend, the um, terraformers with all of his exposition, it was like oh, <laughs> another holy exposition of book joy. <laughs> But uh, it's but a different type different, of it. It's very, very different. But it does have some of those same things where it tells you why a character is doing something, feeling something, what their motivations are. And I think maybe just as a quirk of what I was reading at the time, that was that was just not as engaging to me. But it, it is different and this, this is working as this narrative strategy here. And so you're not meant to, I think, get that engaged with the characters themselves because they are presented to you as archetypes is a very overused word um but you know they are called the book calls a character the father the harridan you know so so when you have characters who are presented in a in an archetypal way then you are not engaging with them so much as people 
Um, and that is not what this book is aiming to do. This this book is telling a particular type of story um, and performing a particular type of critique. Yeah, yeah, but I think it takes it too. I do think it takes it too far. I think by the end of the book, when it's saying, "Hey, do you think the characters know their characters in a novel in a story?" Like literally, that's a question that's yeah, asked that in the book. Like, it's oh, not me. That's. I mean, like, we're, we've gone a bit far oh, for that now. <laughs> yeah, like take it down yeah. a notch. Take it down. No, I, I agree. I mean, look. To be clear, I don't mind that sort of tr- uh, playfulness. I love it. Actually, it's the sort of thing that I gravitate towards. Yeah. But there's a point where, it, again, it's a juggling act and how you pull it off. And I think when you get to the last third, where a, ma- a number of major reveals are happening, and actually the theme of the novel is starting to come through about yeah. the way p- women, the patriarchy oppresses women, but also how the the focus has moved towards uh, trans folk and all that sort of stuff. And that's where. Uh, Gentile's uh, character comes into play, so you're really getting into that thematic stuff, and then you, you're told, and then oh, all of a sudden, like, oh, remember, characters. you're reading a story again. Yeah, I don't think I needed that at that point. I yeah. think that those couple of elements, I, I, I don't mind the very, like the bookend at the end. That's fine, but yeah, bringing those elements back into focus in that that last third, I, I think works against the novel because what it had felt like up until that stuff starts to poke at you again, was that it is beginning as here is this very structured framed story. You know, you know what stories are, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, and we're doing this and we're doing this and here's, and it's very clever and it's like, but then the characters felt like they were coming to life and they were forging for themselves an existence outside of that, which, which you can map to, you know, this type of narrative, you can very yeah. clearly map to patriarchal structures. Um, traditionally and like no now you have these these um women who are pushing out of this narrative and claiming for themselves their own story and their own history and their own way of telling their story and then to have the narrator come back in and go oh but don't forget (laughs) and it's like why (laughs) so that, that kind of undermined that and then I didn't know what that part of the book was doing with itself yeah and and that was where I was confused we see we agree on this one. This is, this there is, we this go. is dull, dull podcast because we agree. We, uh, <laughs> we agree on this. But this is where I, I sort of lost the thread. Yeah. I thought, didn't you've, you've over-egged that pudding. Sorry. I, and, I did. And I felt like I was just starting to get quite engaged with those characters. And then the narrator reminded me I was reading a book. Because, because on, on, the, on the opposite, I loved, I don't know why exactly, but I love the insertions of those um uh, song lyrics and uh, children's uh, nursery rhymes and that, which to are be honest, presented. I, I skip. I kind of yeah, skip past them, no, like I did the poems in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, no, they're beautiful. They're little nuggets of. I know, of, but I know now. I, I know why now because I read the translator's note at the end that showed what they were, and I I don't have any connection to those old French nursery rhymes and tales I didn't get the references and to me but, but it felt, st- yeah I could tell they were something but I didn't know what they were so I no, but they're creepy they're inherently creepy yeah. I don't think you need I don't think you need uh you know a set of footnotes at the bottom to explain and this refers to a no, but they, I, d- I didn't find them creepy like I said I am I am that reader who skipped past all the songs in Lord of the Rings so I don't know what to do with you, Kirsten, because I actually really enjoyed that. And I love how they're translated side by side, which is a yeah. good segue into the translation, which we'll get to in a sec. But I see that I said in my review, it gave the book a haunting soundtrack. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, it, well, but I really liked it. Um, talking about the translator, Rhonda Mullins, uh, amazing job. This is what I was saying last month. There are, even when you don't know the language, and French, not my first language, or second, or millionth, I did learn it at school, but 
was taught. I, no, I was I taught. I think I can count school. to five, and I can say yes, no, and I love you. And and it's also <laughs> and I, and I think there's probably differences, but it's a Quebecian uh, French, so I don't know if that's different to the mainland France French, but there probably are um, uh, changes to the, the the linguistic stuff. But be that as it may. Clearly, I wouldn't know no. word, word choice from word choice, yeah? I don't no. know. I wouldn't have a clue. Neither did you. But you can tell that this is meant to be a very lush and sensual mm. novel. You are me- It's meant to be very tactile, verdant and vibrant, and that comes through very clearly with yep. the translation from page one. So I think if that's the intent, uh, it, it works really well. I mean, I, I have actually a reasonably lengthy quote in my review for Locus about that, but I'm not going to read it now. But it's just that, um, well, actually, I, I love them early on the woman who comes to the house. Uh, the cheese the, the, merchant. Correct. Yep. The donkey father's looking to uh, have sexy times with, uh, with her, her plump pink and fatty-like ham hocks when she emerges from the lake. Milk runs from her breasts. To drink her milk, feast on her cherry, press her up against the cold stone of the wall and grow stiff inside her. <laughs> it's, look, that, it, it, it absolutely leans into that language throughout the whole novel. There yeah. is no walking that back once you're there. And, and, and I think to the credit of Rhonda Mullins, she makes it work. I mean, it, it would have worked in the original text, but she makes it work in an English context. So uh, I, I, um, I loved it. I love that. Yeah, it's no, the the language nice. is really, really lush, and um, and it's a very it's it's a book that's very much centered in bodies. I yeah. guess very different to terraformers, where bodies are just something you take on and off, and, and don't inform you. This this book is very much um, centered around the body and and visceral descriptions of the body and bodily functions and and what what bodies feel like. Um, and I love, one of the things I really loved was the, that juxtaposition of Gentile becoming uh, a trans woman. Uh, and, and within the, it's like, it's, it's going to sound terrible. And I promise you the book is not terrible, but it's kind of a magical <laughs> transformation just in that whatever, whatever assistance Gentile is getting to transform, to change their body is not you know what in the real world trans people use so it is it is herbal it is some concoction that Eleanor has manufactured and there is you know because it's this fairy tale quality there is some idea of of magic to it but there is also a, a beauty to that because what she is getting has come from the forest and so there's this idea that this is this is nature assisting with what Gentile wants to be and who Gentile is. And nature is perhaps correcting her mistake. <laughs> and then, yeah. Oh, not a boy. So sorry. Let's fix that. And there's a, there is a nice magical quality and I don't think I'm doing the book justice because I know the, you know, the magical transformations is a, can be incredibly problematic um, when presented and it, it is not done like that. Um, it is not like click of the fingers. Oh, bang. Now you're a pretty girl. Um, so, yeah, no, Jean-Til, but Jean-Til's transformation and and changing into what she really wants to be and how she wants to express herself and identify is is mirrored with this gruesome bodily transformation that the father is undergoing when he's when th- there is a there is an attack of some kind. Well, he's being um, poisoned. 
Well, there's also the 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 great gashes in his back. Yes, yes, remember? that's right. And, yeah, he's attacked, and his yeah, body correct. starts to change, and yeah. um, there there's like a story being written out of his. It's yeah, it's just flesh. incredible, and those two transformations uh, that kind of go kind of go along side by side, and one is a you know a positive and you know a, about a person coming into themselves, um, and one is almost like a vengeful thing that has been enacted also from the forest um, on the father. And I think they, those two things were, were balanced really beautifully. And it is part of the father's ruin. Like he's, you know. It, 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 again, and I think the more we talk about it, the, the just how clever this book, it is short. It's only 45,000 words. It's yes, yeah. I know, I, I count words. Um, but it is it, how much it packs into that. It's interesting because with, with Gentile, the way it was first introduced to her is sort of as a, it's not a joke, but it has that feel about how yeah the mother-in-law walked in on her with uh, with the maid's clothes on, which is which is often a gag. Yeah, uh, you know, in contemporary uh, drama and that you know <laughs> you're wearing women's clothes, and again, it's that that thing that you think oh really we're gonna go we're gonna do this, but the book completely go it subverts that completely and in a way that's just just as you said beautiful. Yeah, uh, just. Wonderful and and Gentile is the you know it's not just the the um, excavation uh, of of the secrets of the place and some of that literal being bones that are found because there's a blue beard element that runs through this book too yeah well sure. well it's it's all of the discarded concubines and wives um, discarded and murdered um, yeah when when they're no longer useful or pretty or fertile. But it's the way the Gentiles' uh, transformation doesn't mitigate the horrors and persecution and oppression and that, but oh, it just it, it means that it meant something to a degree. That all those castaways and all that it 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 it, it gives it, it said, hope is not the right word. I'm, I'm struggling here because you've got to help. Yeah, me, I, I I I'm not. I don't think it mitigates it, but I think um, it's it's kind of a. Like the, the, this book is the turning point of this yeah. patriarchal Because it's bleak and grim lineage. and dark and horrible, but something beautiful does come from it. Uh, but it, it shouldn't have happened. That's not just, That doesn't justify anything that occurs. Let's be clear. That yeah. doesn't justify. And also it doesn't like, I mean, yes, if who knows if if, Jean, if Jonti could have become Gentile without Alienor and her influence. Um, yeah. bo- both her, you know, the... The potion, whatever it is she's making, um, but also her like her support, her, her immediate instant support. It's like, oh, okay, you're not the son of the manor, you, you're a daughter. Okay, well, how can we help with that? Um, like, and it's just immediate. There's not not even any question about that from her. It's like, oh yes, well, okay, here we go, let's help. And that that's amazing. Which you know, compared to their treatment with their their wife and their mother in law, who were like, get out. Yes. So apart from maybe some of the postmodern bits, <laughs> that's how well I'm going to describe it, I actually think this is a wonderful book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, like, we, we, I think we both like those postmodern bits to an extent, but, yeah, they, in, in retrospect, they didn't, they didn't need to be there and you could have kept that really strong narrative voice that was, you know, omniscient and this, this narrator. Well, that was the thing that I, that I sort of like, why, why? It, why, why do we need to know that this is a, f- a fictional town? I mean, we already know that those places don't. We're reading exist a novel. In the, in the, yeah, 
We already, we already can't. <laughs> We've bought into I, no, that. I can under- so there are times when authors and, and that postmodern world that they're they're actively trying to bring out that sense of disorientation between what's real and what's not. Blah blah blah. Great, but why in this story? Why is it important? That didn't come clear to me, given the 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 the, the broader thematic uh, thesis of the novel. It just didn't. It just sat weirdly. That's all. Because we didn't mention, there's also this big painting. There's this whole thing around a painting. Oh, the that, paintings, uh, yes. Which it's is the artist. Uh, which is, yeah, the artist, and, and there's secrets hidden within the painting and behind the painting. Which is that's the thing. There is a lot in this book, and and the perfume, <laughs> like the perfume that the that the just former wife of the father um used to make, and when her perfume is discovered, that the perfume itself holds within it. I'm not even going to say it's a short book. We need to leave some of the wonders, but Correct. It, 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 there and there are wonders. Like there is some incredible um, scenes and and ideas in here that um, clearly sit so well and comfortably within this genre, but so imaginative and and so different to to things that I've I've read in in other similarly genreed books. And that's a good end to note on because that's I've said that in reverse. That's a good note to end on. I said I just think that's a good end to no, note. I think on. you said it right. I don't think I did. Okay, we'll I go back. I think if and you listen. replay, I think if you replay the tape, you'll find that I completely stuffed that up. Well, the question will be, what version do I leave in the recording? Oh, you're a very mean person. <laughs> we usually say whether we recommend both books or not. I think, as an example of modern science fiction, Terraformers. Yep, I, I enjoyed reading it. It has issues, which we've got well and truly discussed. Yes. Sing Nightingale, uh, even with its postmodern flourishes, uh, I re- unreservedly recommend it. Yeah. It, it is a really beautiful book. All right, Kirsten. Well, we are done. What have we got next? We are done. What have we so, got for our last um, podcast before the break? Yes. Yeah, so next month will be our, our last of this season. <laughs> And we'll be having a break in June and July and then coming back in August. So next month in May, we are looking at two short story collections. One I just came across because of a amusing and intelligent Twitter exchange. And I don't even know why I was on Twitter. Um, I think I was there to look at a notification and then I looked at something else. Anyway, and this is how I'm choosing my books these days. That insubstantial decision. Um, it's by Eric LaRocca, uh, and this is The Trees Grew Because I Bled There. I think the fact that it's also a really interesting title. Yeah, <laughs> that, like, that is a, pr- yeah, that that's is a, a great, great title. title. Um, so it is a collection of short stories. Really, really keen to read it. And mine, also with a pretty decent title, is Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned by Wells Tower, which is a collection that was published in 2010 Wells Tower has written for Believer magazine and a bunch of other things. This was at the time one of the big collections of that year, and I bought it then and never read it. Thirteen years later, here we are. Here so, we are. Great. I think uh, the trees grew because I bled. There is fairly new, and um, I've not read any of uh, Eric Larocca's work, and I have been neither have I. To. So this is a a good start. I think it, it is. Um, the LaRocca is a horror, I believe, verging into a body horror subgenre. Is yours just literary? The Wells Tower is stories. I've no stories. idea. I just, I just know that this is a collection that people keep talking about, and that's okay. why, I've, and that's that's why it's been on my. And they're both available, easily purchased. Oh yeah. They, uh, yeah. Um, 
yeah, I just know that the, that the people go on about it still de- a decade later. So I thought, well, okay. we should probably. Well, I look forward to reading it. I had it. not heard of it, so there you go. Kirsten, you don't follow the right people on Twitter. All right? I do not. I do not. And uh, at the bottom of our list, you've got the checklist for Ian, and we now need to add um, charge your and, headphones charge, charge so they headphones. don't lose battery life halfway through the podcast. That's okay. We have a checklist. We'll get there one day. You can send feedback to writerandcritic.podbean.com. You make a comment on the episode there. You can send an email to writerandcritic at gmail.com. You can follow us at writerandcritic on Twitter. But don't, honest, don't bother. Don't bother. We're not bother. really checking in. I don't think I even... I don't think I even posted the last link to the episode on Twitter last month. <laughs> if, if, if the link's posted, it'll be posted on my personal Twitter account. Yes. That's, and that's um, and you can sponsor us on Patreon if you can. And thank you to our lovely sponsors who help keep the lights on. That is it for this month. Uh, we shall enjoy, hopefully, enjoy reading our short story collections this month and come back to talk about them <laughs> in May. Maybe, I, maybe for May... I'll look at my ageing to be read shelf and pick a book off that to read. Yeah, that might be maybe. a good idea. Okay, all right. Well, well, not well, not 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 for Matt and for no. In in May, I'll pick one for August to announce in May. <laughs> Reading in August because I don't think it will torture. be Brett Easton Ellis's. You better not. No, no, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't recommend shards. I may read shards, but don't make me read. I may read it, but I want to be choose to read it. Don't make me read it. So that- oh, okay. I, I think that's fair. I think Brett Easton Ellis is an author you must come to willingly. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Bye, Ian. Bye. It's me. But that's going to the start of the that's going to the start of the podcast, isn't it? Oh, it might. I have recorded it. <laughs> and I don't think I've said much else that I would have put out in public, so <laughs> <laughs>